Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. VR training platforms like the one developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International are helping surgeons train over and over before operating on real patients. As you practice each skill, the muscle memory starts to develop. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. This is the John Fugelsang Podcast. Thea Harper will be joining us, our wonderful associate producer, with another edition of the Minority Report. Chris Houselt, our executive producer, he's in South Carolina. He might join us if he gets bored. You know, if there's nothing on his TiVo, he, he might. I don't, you know, he pops in occasionally when his meds act up again. So we'll see about that. In the meantime, I hope you guys are well. I hope you've had a good week. We're almost done with it. I don't know what's going to happen to our country, but I promise you, SiriusXM Progress will be here, bringing you sanity, truth, facts, and hope, no matter what. I'm going to be at the Comedy Loft in D.C. on the 22nd to 23rd of July. Uh, that's with John Pulveromo. I'm going to be doing the Sexy Liberal Tour with uh, Stephanie Miller, Hal Sparks, and Frangela, and special guests at the Harris Theater in Millennium Park, Chicago, on Saturday, September 4th. We're also going to be doing the new uh, Sexy Liberal Save Democracy Tour at the Saban Theater in Los Angeles, Saturday, October 22nd. And apparently I'm playing at the uh, Hopewell Theater in New Jersey right by the Pennsylvania border on the 8th Saturday of, uh, of December, of, of October. Last time I played that was with Scott Blakeman and Leanne Lord. We had a great time. And uh, then COVID hit like a week later. And uh, yeah, it, it's a mess. So it's time to go back, I guess, to the scene of the crime. In the meantime, last week, while we were focused on the Trump January 6th hearings, the Trump Supreme Court was destroying the wall between church and state. Today... While we watched the Trump January 6th hearings, the Trump Supreme Court undermined the rights of the accused and told states they don't have the right to pass laws to keep their citizens safe from guns anymore. Today was a dark day, folks. On the one hand, we couldn't believe the stuff that Trump got away with and wondered if these guys will get away with it. And while they were doing that, the Supreme Court got away with even more. During the fifth hearing for the January 6th, committee today uh and they were investigating the attack on the u.s capitol like they do and they focused in on former host of celebrity apprentice on nbc donald trump's threat to fire his attorney general in favor of somebody uh more pliable more willing to pursue his lies about election fraud we're talking about trump's efforts to install jeffrey clark as attorney general now um we heard from trump's acting attorney general jeff rosen who Trump called or met with every day from December 23rd to early January, pressuring him to do whatever he had to do to overturn the election. And it was Rudy Giuliani who says that he told Trump he needed to put someone in a DOJ who isn't frightened of what could be done to their reputation. Enter the biggest schmendrick you can find. Now, today's witnesses, I want to point out, Jeff Rosen, Rich Donahue, and Stephen Engel, they were all appointed by Donald Trump. They were all approved by the Senate. In Trump's first year, by the afternoon of January 3rd, 
2021. The White House presidential call log started referring to little-known Justice Department lawyer and election denier Jeffrey Clark as the acting attorney general. That was revealed today. They were just calling him that, even though he wasn't. And Donald Trump tried really hard to install this lawyer, this environmental law guy, at the top of the DOJ in the final days of his presidency. And had he been able to do it, we might have seen our entire top law enforcement agencies throw their weight behind Trump's lies about election fraud, were it not for the threat of mass resignations by DOJ leadership, including the three witnesses, all appointed by Trump, who testified at today's hearing. Guys, I don't know if you saw this today, but it was crazy. Former acting deputy attorney general Richard Donahue spoke powerfully. Another Republican who's like the old kind of Republican, which was a Republican. And he talks about a very lengthy December 27th meeting with Trump, where Trump urgently demanded he investigate all these election lies. And Donahue says he sat there and refuted Trump's claims one by one. Give a little listen to this. This is Richard Donahue telling Adam Kinzinger he line by line put the kibosh on Trump's election fraud claims, A4. Donahue, on December 27th, you had a 90-minute conversation with the president where he raised false claim after false claim with you and Mr. Rosen. Uh, How did you respond to what you called a, quote, stream of allegations? The December 27th conversation um, was, uh, in my mind, an escalation of the earlier conversations as the former acting AG indicated. There were a lot of communications that preceded that. As we got later in the month of December, the uh, president's entreaties became more urgent. He became more adamant that we weren't doing our job. We need to step up and do our job. Um, And he had this arsenal of allegations um, that he wanted to to rely on. And so I felt in that conversation that was incumbent on, on me to make it very clear to the president what our investigations had revealed and that we had concluded based on actual investigations, actual witness interviews, actual reviews of documents, that these allegations simply had no merit. And I wanted to try to cut through the noise because it was clear to us that there were a lot of people whispering in his ear, feeding him these conspiracy theories and allegations. And I felt that being very blunt in that conversation Uh might help make it clear to the president that these allegations were simply not true. And so as he went through them and what for me was a 90-minute conversation or so, and what for the former acting AG was a two-hour conversation. Um, As the president went through them, I went piece by piece to say, no, that's false, that is not true, and to correct him um, really in in a serial fashion as he moved from one theory to another. Can you give me... Now, again, here's Richard Donahue in his interview today telling the committee what he told Jeff Clark about why he was not qualified to become attorney general because he's an environmental lawyer. Give a listen to this. This clip is going to be probably the the most famous one of the day. I made the point that Jeff Clark is not even competent to serve as the attorney general. He's never been a criminal attorney. He's never conducted a criminal investigation in his life. He's never been in front of a grand jury, much less a trial jury. Um, And he kind of retorted by saying, well, I've done a lot of very complicated appeals and civil litigation, environmental litigation, and things like that. And I said, that's right, you're an environmental lawyer. How about you go back to your office and we'll call you when there's an oil spill. And uh, Pat Cipollone, 
weighed in at one point, I remember saying, you know, that letter that this guy wants to send, that letter is a murder-suicide pact. It's going to damage everyone who touches it. And we should have nothing to do with that letter. I don't ever want to see that letter again. Boom. <laughs> so, so um, it goes on. Then Stephen Engel spoke. He was one of the officials who told Trump that he would have no choice but to quit if Trump replaced the acting attorney general with environmental lawyer Jeffrey Clark. And when they wouldn't reply, comply, Trump just threatened to replace all of them. And so all three guys who were there today threatened to resign. They implied they'd take a lot of officials with them. And Trump backed down. Uh, White House lawyer Eric Hirschman told Jeffrey Clark about his plan to help Trump overturn the 2020 election. Pretty much said, if you do this, you're going to be a felon. This is A6. And when he planned on doing, I said, good fucking, excuse me, sorry, a-hole. Congratulations, you just admitted a first step or act you take as attorney general would be committing a felony and violating Rule 6E. You're clearly the right candidate for this job. Now, federal agents have just raided the home of attorney Jeffrey Clark, who, again, was trying to overthrow our democracy by pushing to be made head of the DOJ and then declare the results of the 2020 election as illegitimate. Guys, this is how close we came. Donald Trump was trying to put his winged monkeys in power who would do this for him. And it was only some career, some career men and women in law enforcement threatening to resign in large numbers that stopped him. We know that White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows forwarded DOJ officials this convoluted YouTube conspiracy theory. This was new for me, that uh, Italian satellites were magically switching votes from Trump to Joe Biden because Italian satellites can do this. And after Donahue, who you heard before in acting AG Jeffrey Rosen, said this was total insanity, uh, acting Defense Secretary Christopher Miller reached out to a high-ranking official in Italy to ask about it, and he was told, no, it's complete nonsense. But Trump was crazy. They were going for any kind of sci-fi nonsense to try to claim that somehow the votes were being switched. Never mind the fact that, again, the Republican Party gained seats in the House. So the Democrats tried to rig the election, where they would actually lose seats in the House of Representatives. Trump was talking about stealing voting machines from state governments, and he was agitated when he was told that the DOJ didn't have that authority. And then, then, oh, friends, came the moment millions of us were waiting for. They began naming the names of the Republicans in Congress who requested presidential pardons. Now, this is what I want your thoughts on. Where is this going to go? What's going to happen to the Republican lawmakers who strategized with Trump, who asked top White House officials to help arrange for pardons? Why would they try to arrange for pardons if they really believed that Trump had won the election fair and square. At least five of them asked for presidential pardons after January 6th. Who were they? Matt Gates, who uh, needs a lot of pardons. I can think of, well, under 17 reasons. Mo Brooks, Andy Biggs, Louis Gohmert from Texas, and Scott Perry. Also, uh, former White House aide Cassidy Hutchinson said she heard Marjorie Taylor Greene ask for a pardon through the White House Counsel Office, and she testified that Jim Jordan asked whether Trump was considering pardoning members of Congress, but he never actually requested one himself. It's scary. These traitors. These traitors. Oh, and Mo Brooks, by the way, he sent an email on January 11th. 2021, asking for all-purpose pardons for every lawmaker who objected to the electoral votes from Arizona and Pennsylvania. They knew it was illegal. These criminals, these moral cretins, asked for pardons from the White House for their role in trying to overthrow our election. 
you know, if you were following this on social media and looking on the January 6th hashtags, you know what you didn't see? You didn't see a lot of right-wing trolls defending Trump's actions. I mean, like, it's the safest place to be to get away from a troll. January 6th committee hashtags. Because there is no rational defense. I mean, I'm sorry, no rational denial of the facts. These guys have to be indicted. These guys must be punished. But what didn't we see? What we didn't see was the Supreme Court striking down the New York law that's 100 years old that requires state residents to have proper cause to carry a handgun. This is going to make it a lot easier for millions of people to arm themselves in public, on the subways, in the movie theaters, in the restaurants. Clarence Thomas wrote the opinion for the 6-3 majority. Thanks, all you liberals in swing states who didn't want to vote for Hillary Clinton. Thank you for your purity. Look what we got now. I hope none of y'all have uteruses. Clarence Thomas decided New York's 100-year-old law violates the Constitution. Remember how these racists are always all about states' rights, unless you want to limit guns or let people have marijuana or let women have control of their body autonomy? Here's Governor Kathy Hochul. She responded right away, angrily, to the Supreme Court decision rolling back a century-old law concerning concealed carry permits, A1. As governor of the state of New York, my number one priority is to keep New Yorkers safe. But today, the Supreme Court is sending us backwards in our efforts to protect families and prevent gun violence. And it's particularly painful that this came down at this moment. We are still dealing with families in pain from mass shootings that have occurred, the loss of life, their beloved children and grandchildren. Today, the Supreme Court struck down a New York law that limits who can carry concealed weapons. Does everyone understand what a concealed weapon means? that you have no forewarning, that someone can hide a weapon on them and go into our subways, go into our grocery stores, like stores up in Buffalo, New York, where I'm from, go into a school in Parkland or Uvalde. This could place millions of New Yorkers in harm's way. And this is at a time when we're still mourning the loss of lives, as I just mentioned. This decision isn't just reckless, it's reprehensible. It's not what New Yorkers want. And we should have the right of determination of what we want to do in terms of our gun laws in our state. If the federal government will not have sweeping laws to protect us, then our states and our governors have a moral responsibility to do what we can and have laws that protect our citizens because of what is going on, the insanity of the gun culture that has now possessed everyone all the way up to even to the Supreme Court. Damn, this strips local officials of all their authority to deny permits to gun owners who want to carry weapons outside their home for almost any reason. It's going to nullify laws in other states that have strong concealed carry licensing laws. Here in New York, you can still carry a gun. You've just got to get a permit showing you have proper cause to carry a concealed weapon. I mean, what this means is NRA and gun nuts are going to be in courts all over challenging every gun law across the U.S., Here's one more. Kathy Hochul said the state has been preparing for this day and New York is ready to fight. We have been working with a team of experts, legal experts from all over this country and organizations like every town, true leaders to make sure that we are prepared. I'm prepared to call the legislature back into session to deal with this. We've been in contact with the leadership. We're just looking at dates. Everyone wants a little bit of time to digest this. But I will say we are not powerless in this situation. We're not going to cede our rights that easily, despite the best efforts of the politicized Supreme Court of the United States of America. 
Again, any kind of gun regulation in any state can now be challenged. And on top of this, while we were watching the Trump hearings, they took away Miranda rights. Vega versus Tico. Supreme Court said that if the police fail to inform you of your rights, sorry, you can't sue them. This is the death of Miranda rights. Ordinary people are further disempowered. The power of the state grows. They shielded cops from being sued by suspects for failing to provide well-known Miranda warnings. This is an L.A. case. And they've ruled law enforcement officers can't be sued for money damages if they violate the rights of suspects by failing to provide the very familiar Miranda warning that you've heard if you've ever watched a movie that has a cop in it. This was ruling that a person who did not get the warning has no right to sue the government for violating their rights. Elena Kagan said the diminishment of Miranda will ensure that people who are wrongly convicted and spend years of prison will have no remedy for all the harm they suffered. Six to three by the people you would expect. The Supreme Court is now a radical institution, destroying decades of precedent. The Federalist Society picked these six people, and the government can now arrest you and jail you without Miranda rights. The Supreme Court has decided the government can execute you even if your lawyer screws up, you don't get a new trial. This government can force you to have a baby. This government could force you to bear your rapist baby. This government can take your tax dollars to support private religion, even a religion that discriminates. But they can't. They can't protect your right to vote, and they can't let you do anything to keep your community safe from guns. That is the Trump court. And I don't just blame right-wingers, because haters going to hate. But this Supreme Court belongs to every liberal who lives in a swing state. I don't care if you had to vote third party and you live in a blue state. I get it. But if you were in Wisconsin, Pennsylvania... You were too damn pure to compromise your values and vote for Hillary Clinton, who you only agreed with on 85% of issues. I don't care how much you think Hillary sucked. Y'all own this, guys. You guys own this. So what are you going to do? You don't like the Democrat? Get better Democrats elected. But you can't do third-party bullshit in swing states. It's done, guys. I'm not against third parties. Our greatest president was a third party president. He got in with 38% of the vote. He was the first Republican president. His name was Lincoln. I'm not against the idea. But we are up against fascism right now. And it means every one of us has to come together. And far left people who hate moderates and moderates who can't stand the far left are going to have to hold their nose and recognize if you care about any of the values we pretend to care about, you've got to come together. And Republicans with souls have got to be told what side they're on. Guys, I know you don't want to compromise your values when you vote. I get it, Hillary fans. I get it, Bernie fans. But we have to work together. We now see what happened. And go ahead, say, oh, Democrats should appoint better candidates. Yeah, okay, great. You didn't like Hillary. I get it. But if you didn't vote for her in a battleground state in 2016, you are the reason we have the Supreme Court that is dismantling Roe v. Wade. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows VR training platforms like ForgeFX help students master their skills. There's a big learning curve with welding. Virtual reality simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. As you write your life story... You're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. 
Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. Racism is an existential threat to America. If we cannot muster the bravery to figure out and confront our racial issues, there will be no United States worth saving to leave to our children. So says our next author in a very powerful book. Theodore Johnson is senior fellow and director of the Fellows Program at the Brennan Center for Justice at the NYU School of Law. He was, of course, the national fellow at New America and a commander in the United States Navy, serving for 20 years in many positions, including a White House fellow in the first Obama administration and a speechwriter to the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, Chris's old job. Uh, his work on race relations has b- appeared in some of the best publications you can read, from New York Times Magazine to The Atlantic, The Washington Post. His book, When the Stars Begin to Fall, Overcoming Racism and Renewing the Promise of America, is part memoir, part politi- political analysis about building our national solidarity post-Trump to keep racism, the only force that's ever broken our union, from doing so again. The book is now out in paperback. It is a great pleasure to welcome Theodore Johnson back to SiriusXM. Good to be here. So glad to be back. So glad to have you back. Uh, I love your book. It is such a work of uh, uh, uncompromising frankness, yet incredible optimism. And before I even dive into it, I I have to ask you, if you don't mind, I think it's a lovely way to set it up. And I, I know I asked you about this a year ago. Can I ask about your name? Uh, who sure. were you named after, and, and what's the significance of your name in the context of your book? Yeah, so, I mean, as you said, I'm Theodore R. Johnson. I go by Ted, Teddy, when I'm, when I'm home with uh, family and friends. But the Theodore R. is actually Theodore Roosevelt. So my full name is Theodore Roosevelt Johnson III. And uh, I, of course, carry the name of my father and my grandfather. My grandfather was given that name by his parents in uh, 1918, after the president, uh, Teddy Roosevelt, who you know was president 1901 to 1908. But what Roosevelt did um, a month after taking office, after McKinley was assassinated and Roosevelt was his VP, um, was Teddy Roosevelt invited Booker T. Washington to the White House for dinner with him and his family. Um, and this was the first time in the nation's history that a black man had been invited to the White House to dine with the first family as an equal. Not, you know, certainly Frederick Douglass visited Abraham Lincoln, but often through the back door, private conversation and leaving through the back door. This one um, was a very public dinner, uh, so much so that the next morning when the country learned about the dinner, lots of people were extremely upset with with Roosevelt because dining with Booker T. Washington suggested that there was a racial equality between the two men at a time when the nation wasn't quite ready to accept racial equality. Uh, And so while some people were upset, uh, a lot of people were very happy, including uh, black sharecroppers in the South, of which my great grandparents were, were two of them. So they named my grandfather after the president as a sort of claim on the American promise, as a sort of uh, a, a political statement about their inclusion and deservingness to belong in America, and as a rebuttal to those who would suggest that there's something incongruent or incompatible between being black and being fully and truly American. Uh, and so I, I carry the name with pride. It's it's um significant that they named my grandfather after the white Republican rich New Yorker 
president Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. not after the most famous black man in America, Booker T. Washington. Um, And again, because uh, the the claim of of our place in America was um, a little bolder by by naming their their black child after the president or the former president at the time he was born um, instead of the civil rights activist and educator Booker T. Washington. So here, you know, I'd like to think that my my life story is a, a product of their faith and optimism and, and the American promise. My God, I want to vote for you so bad. I hope you <laughs> for everything. Um, as you know, sir, nearly two in three Americans believe that racism remains a major problem. Three out of four Americans say race relations are bad. More than half of us think they're getting worse. 80% of Americans think incivility will lead to violence. The average American voter believes the U.S. is two-thirds of the way to the edge of a civil war. And hate crimes are on the rise. Black Americans are the victims of nearly half of all hate crimes, despite making up less than 14% of the population. So it's rather impressive that you write a book as hopeful as this one. And mm-hmm. you, as you've said, too much of the debate about racism in America is abstract, couched in overused, misused terms and theories, but experiences with it are real and enduring. Nearly every black American has a story about the first time they were called the N-word. Mm-hmm. Sir, what's yours? Yeah. Yeah. I actually opened up the book with this vignette. Um, I was in middle school. Um, I lived in a suburb of Raleigh, North Carolina, uh, in a white suburb. Most of my friends were white and um, walking to school as we did every morning with with my friends from behind a hedge of bushes. One of the um, one of the jerks in the neighborhood, uh, you know, a 12 year old kid just threw the slur out from behind um uh, of the, the bushes where he was kind of hiding. And on this particular day, I happened to be with uh, a new kid in the neighborhood who was also black. And so it was uh, maybe five or six of us, two of us were black and the other three or four boys were white. And so when we heard the word thrown at us, basically all black people are the N word. Um, this was the first time I'd been called that name out of, out of uh, in, in malice, you know, out of anger um, or out of hatred or, or at least, um, you know, intolerance. And I didn't really know what to do. Um, You know, my parents are children of the South. My grandparents on both sides were sharecroppers. They grew up with the word being hurled at them. Uh, This was a new experience for me. I was, uh, you know, the Cosby kid generation and grew up very much like like Theo Huxtable. So um, it's, you you just don't forget that moment. And it's in that moment when uh, I hear the word, my immediate reaction was to look to my friends to like say, like, what are we going to do about this? This is not cool. And they had nothing for me. They looked at me like, what are you going to do about this? I can't believe he would use that word towards you. And that was the moment where I felt the distance between me and my friends um, and race was and, and this this pejorative was the thing that created the distance I felt that morning. Um, but frankly, it was a distance that has long endured in our country that I'd had the luxury to ignore for much of my early childhood, but uh, sort of slapped me square in the face that morning. You, you say in the book, it was the first time you saddled the silent weight of being black in America at age 12. Mm. I, I love the way you convey for your readers of all racial backgrounds what that weight feels like. Mm. And how, as you say, it it shapes a different reality for those who experience it. Right. Yeah. It's 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 um 
I mean, this word kind of feels a little academic, but it's like an othering. You sort of feel like you're now outside the circle. You you know, you're sort of um, a, a bit foreign or alien to what it means to be truly part of this country. And again, I had never, I mean, I, I knew racism was real. Uh, as with parents that grew up under Jim Crow, you are never far from the reality of racial discrimination, but it never felt tangible in my day-to-day life growing up until that morning. And what it does is it takes the blinders off and slights that happen after that um, sort of, um, um, little, you know, things that people say, the way you're treated, you now begin to wonder, I wonder, is it because of who I am as a person or is it because of my race? Is it because of the group that I belong to? And it causes you to second guess your social interactions, especially across lines of race in a way that um, just, just didn't exist for me prior to. Um, and that is, and it is a, it's, it's a stressor. It's a burden to, to yeah. have to assess every interaction with this little question mark in the back of your head, wondering how race did or did not influence these, these interactions, um, everything. And, and look, I, I, like you mentioned at the start, I did 20 years in the military. Uh, I mean, I was told by fellow officers on promotions, uh, like that it was an affirmative action deal, or when I was selected for the white house fellowship, that it only happened because Barack Obama was black and, you know, and I was black and that sort of helped me. So, in some instances, it's quite clear the role that that race plays in your social interactions. And then in others, it's not. And what that morning at, at 12 years old being called the N-word, what it does is it makes you question every interaction and in a way that just um, is really destructive of trying to build connection and kinship with with uh, the folks you share the country with. What What's your take on how the military has evolved in terms of grappling with race? I I, I... I like to point out in recent years, the armed forces has become arguably the leading institutional champion mm. of affirmative action, filing many, many lawsuits. And we've seen, you know, banning the Confederate flag as recently as last year. But where do you think the armed forces is in its messy evolution on how to handle race and equality and justice in the ranks? Yeah. And so I, I believe it is ahead of the rest of society. And um, I only believe it's ahead uh, well, for for two reasons. Um, one is historical. Uh, the, the by presidential executive order in 1948, President Truman desegregated the military, and this was again before Brown versus Board. This is he did it at a time when the Supreme Court said that separate but equal was still constitutional. Um, he did it at a time where. Um, the segregated movie theaters and buses and trains and, and neighborhoods were statutorily protected. And so the military had a head start on what desegregation looked like. That's right. And it wasn't widely embraced by the military brass, by the generals and admirals and appointed civilians that led the military. It was forced down their throats. But as a result, today, um, and that head start, our promotion system is considered to be one of the most fair in the country. Um, it's considered to be a meritocracy uh, that that is in place more so than it is in other places. And to the, the sort of second reason why I think it, it works is because the military has a very strong um, 
culture of meritocracy, of where the best person for the job, um, where promotion is a result of, of your work ethic, your talent, et cetera, and not because you knew the right person and not because you went to the right school. Now, I, what I don't want to do is gloss over the fact that nepotism does exist in the military, that if you went to sure. a service academy, um, sometimes those guys get a second look in ways that maybe if you went through officer candidate school or ROTC, those guys don't get. But in the main, on the whole, it's a fair a fairer institution with more um, institutional protections against discrimination than you will find just sort of you know as a as a, a civilian bumping around America. Um, and so that's a good thing. But it took a long road to get here. I mean, the Navy had segregated birthing and ships until the 1970s. You know, um, so this isn't it's not like the military has figured it out. I mean, if you're a black woman in the military, it was only in the last year or two that you're able to wear your natural hair. That's um, right. Or or locked hair uh, in uniform. So we've got a ways to go. But um, relative to where the country is, um, the, the military has not backslidden in the same ways I think we're seeing parts of our society do today. I, I agree. I want to I want to extrapolate that a bit because you make the case in the book that no statute or policy agenda will straighten out what racism has wrought. The tools of our democracy, elections, institutions, laws, judiciary oversight are all necessary, but are wholly inefficient to eradicate racial hierarchy on their own. Mm. I agree and that's scary. So what then is to be done? Yeah. Yeah, it's really scary. I mean, if we think about it, after the Civil War, we get the 13th, 14th and 15th Amendments. The 15th Amendment essentially says if you are a black man uh, formerly enslaved, you can now vote. And within 15 years, Jim Crow begins to come on the scene. And by the end of the 19th century, by the, you know, 1895, 1900, basically, if you're black in America, you cannot vote. And that lasts until the Civil Rights or the um, Civil Rights Act of 64 and the Voting Rights Act of 65. And yet just in the last decade, um, we've seen the Supreme Court say that parts of the Voting Rights Act of 65 is unconstitutional. And we've seen a number of states begin to implement new laws that make it more difficult for mm -hmm. certain black communities to participate in elections. So if if um, laws were sufficient, then after the 15th Amendment was passed, and after the 19th Amendment was passed that allowed black women to now participate in elections, we wouldn't have needed the Voting Rights Act of 65. We wouldn't have, a, you know, there wouldn't have been a push in Congress to pass the John Lewis Voting Rights Act in this yep. current session because the laws and the Constitution would have already spoken to the matter. Um, so the fact that we have to keep relitigating these issues suggests that the law isn't the problem in and of itself. It's that we have a, a culture, we have a society that is always looking to find loopholes and vulnerabilities in our voting laws in order to shape the electorate in a way that those who hold power can maintain power or those who are seeking it can can gain access to it. And often that means excluding um, uh, folks who are unlikely to vote for your party or making it more mm -hmm. difficult for them to participate. So until we have a change in culture, until we really embrace an inclusive democracy, then there isn't a single law we can pass that's going to solve our problems of allowing everyone to participate equally. So with our final minutes, one of the more hopeful stats you note in the book shows that a majority of Americans believe our best days are ahead of us and that optimism is particularly high among poor African-Americans. So mm. what reasons do we have? What reasons do you have to be confident yeah. in a better future? Especially, I mean, I'm glad Juneteenth's a holiday, but I know that's not it. So, you know, right. what, <laughs> what is giving you hope? 
Yeah. And so I, I think that there's a sort of twofold explanation here. One, usually those um, folks from marginalized communities, they have high levels of optimism because the alternative that life is only going to get worse from the life they currently have is just too depressing to bear. I mean, like they have to get up in the morning and to think that tomorrow is going to be worse than today when you're already at the margins of society is um, is, is not a good way to go about living. And so optimism turns out to be the fuel that gets people who are marginalized in our society to continue pressing forward and hoping for a better day, just like my great grandparents did over a century ago in Jim Crow, South Carolina, and still managed to have enough optimism left in them to name their third son after a president in hopes that one day um, their children would be seen as equals, just as Booker T. Washington was. So some of that is just a survival mechanism. Optimism becomes a fuel. Some of it, I think, is... Um, it's sort of connected, frankly, to uh, to religion and, you know, mm -hmm. the, in, in history, there's the black church has a vein of faith and optimism in it. And I think some of that is connected to the idea that um, if you are part of an oppressed population, that you need to cling to something to give you hope that tomorrow will be better, if not for you, than for your children. And religion has often been filled that in. But for me, whenever I, I feel when I, I despair of uh, of tomorrow, or what the future may hold, I look back at the generations that preceded us and say, if they had enough courage to have faith and optimism, if they were able to maintain their belief that the country would be better during a time of slavery or during a time of, of oppressive laws, then who am I in the 21st century? Uh, you know, the child of IBMers and first generation college students, you know, a military officer, uh, you know, like who am I to suddenly believe that tomorrow we lose the whole thing and there's nothing I can do about it. So I draw on the faith of those who came before us um, in, in hopes that we can uh, create a, a better country just as they did. I love the the logic of that hope. Theodore R. Johnson <laughs> is the author of When the Stars Begin to Fall, Overcoming Racism and Renewing the Promise of America. It's a great book. It's a great gift. It's now out in paperback. Please come see us again. I barely got to scratch the surface tonight. We'd love to have you back anytime. Anytime. Thanks so much. What a great pleasure. Thank you. We'll be right back with your calls. Laura in Florida. Hello. Hello. Hi. I usually I listen to Progress. Um, usually listen to Michelangelo and Dino Badala. Okay. Um, going to get, you know, some ice at my local gas station, and I'm just angry. Tell me. Um, I'm just angry about everything. I know. I'm, I'm angry about, I have... I'm going to not even put my wife in to all of this, but I live in Florida. Um, I hate it here. I'm originally from New Jersey, and mm -hmm. um, I just, I'm not quite sure what's going on in this world. I know. It's and a scary I time. To, I, I kind of need to tell me what's going on. Um, Here's what's going on in this world, okay? Are you ready? The entire history, the entire history of the American experiment has been an ongoing struggle between people fighting for we and people fighting for me. Yes, we were founded in the name of freedom, but this was done by slave owners. It's always been a struggle between selfishness and decency. The, poverty is preventable. If we wanted to end poverty, we could. But there's a lot of selfishness here. 
inflation. We could end these high prices right now. But greedy people sitting on record profits like their record profits, and they are not going to have a smaller yacht this year. So we're paying a lot more. Uh, Guns. You know, you can have all the guns. You can have lots of guns. You can have enough guns to kill everybody in your neighborhood if you got around to it. Uh, There's some guns we don't want people to have, but they value their personal entertainment more than they value the lives of other Americans. It's all about selfishness. It's all about the me versus the we. That's what segregation was about. Basically, just humans not having empathy, not caring for others. Now we're in a time when people are discouraged. People are gaslit. People have really, really been made to think that our vote doesn't matter. Joe Biden can have the greatest uh, turnout of voters for any candidate in the history of the country. No one, no, no candidate for any office ever got more votes any time than Joe Biden did. And the guy can't get anything passed. And it's discouraging. And they want you to give up. And there's a very good chance that all these bad things are going to happen in the next year, in the next six months. They're going to take away abortion rights. And they're, they, we, we may see the Republicans take over the House and the Senate. We may see Ron DeSantis, that doughy mediocrity, oh, no, become no, no, president. No, no, don't say that. Don't Hang say on a that. second. It can happen. It could happen. Okay? Please. We have faced this before. There have been worse times in history. The American Civil War was worse. During the Vietnam War, I wasn't around, but it certainly seemed worse. When Bush was first elected and now they used 9-11 to justify a war in Iraq, I thought it was the end of the world then, too. We've seen dark times before, and the smug, racist assholes who can't spell your correctly are going to be crowing and are going to be acting like they win, and Donald Trump and all of these evil cultists make it pardoned and all the bad guys might win and it could be like an episode of fucking game of thrones where all the good guys get slaughtered and the bad guys are laughing and that's how it could feel for the next six months how it could feel for the next two years now if that happens are you going to give up are you going to become cynical are you going to sit on the couch and watch kardashians and just check out or are you going to still stay in the game still fight for this experiment still fight for the least of us still no matter how bad it gets and it might get worse. We're still going to be fighting for women's rights. We're not going to give up and join the, 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 the Republicans and the fascists. We're still going to fight for LGBTQ rights. We're still going to fight for immigrants and the rights of children and the rights of sick people. We're still going to fight for single-payer health care. We're still going to fight for a decent society because that's what caring people do. So no matter what, the world's never going to be perfect when we all die. The struggle will be going on. And we'll all, if we're lucky, be the old people going to the peace march. That may be how it plays out. The whole point is, how are you going to spend your time on this earth? This brief whisper of time we get as a life. Are you going to spend it fighting for others? Are you going to spend it giving up? Or are you going to spend it checking out? No, I'm going to fight for others, baby. Right on. So we all done with this? All done with this fear shit now? I'm going to put this out there right now. My wife is sticking her head out. She's uh, dying of... uh, Stage four metastatic cancer. Oh, God bless. I know. And you want to know something? She's fighting like a fucking rock star, buddy. Wow. What's your wife's name? My wife's name is Nina. Nina. We've been together 17 years. Oh, my God. Hi, Nina. Hi, Nina. And we have a uh, 25-year-old son who graduated from UConn three years ago. Wow. And we're just, you know what, and we're dealing with, you know, I'm dealing with on Facebook, like, my Yankees 
my Yankees page because they put a rainbow Yankee thing and people are, it, it, it's, I'm just so angry and I'm sorry. I know. You know I, me too. Me too. Believe me, there's I, the, talk, the, this, like, the, I watch these hearings and I see the Supreme Court and I'm like, I don't want to come on the radio at night and talk about this. I, I just want to check out and watch Obi-Wan again or, or go get drunk somewhere and not care. It's, oh, it's, it could be discouraging. No, that's I've been I've been watching the hearings and I'm like, is anything going to happen to that tan? Yeah, you know, what's going to happen. You know, what's going to happen. The history books will know that some of us cared. Some of us stood up. Some of us called bullshit. The history books will record that not all of us took it. That's why we had to have both impeachments. We knew they would never last. We knew he wouldn't be removed from office. We had to do it anyway to show generations to come that we didn't all roll over and let this fascist pig just run roughshod over our democracy, that some of us stood up and said no. Yep. Amen, honey. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Thank so you both. My wife. Thank you, too. Thank Wait, you, Nina. Hey, did you did you move to Florida for Nina? Is that how much you love her? Because that's a lot of love. <laughs> that, no, we uh, here's a I'll give it long and short because I'm sure there's other callers. So I'm from Jersey. She's from upstate New York, Saratoga Springs. Nice. Um, we both moved to Virginia for different reasons. And we met uh, good friends of ours introduced us. And here we are now. And now we're in Florida because this was where she wanted to be. And then I'm going to like, you know. I'm like, Ugh, South Florida sucks, but you know we're we're doing what we have to do. Nice. We're doing nice. what we have to do, and we're we're loving life. And you know she's she's dying. I mean, I we don't have a lot of time left, but we're just enjoying life. That's it. I, I listen. Florida's where both my mom and dad are buried, and uh, I know what it's like to love in that state. I know what it's like to feel like you're losing your mind in that state. But there's a lot of good people in that state. There's a there's a lot of beauty. There's a lot of kindness. There's a lot of people out there who do care and who are fighting for a better Florida. And it's really an honor to have both of you listen to this humble little burlesque we do every night. Thank you so much. Oh, I am so happy. You know what? I, I emailed you. Well, I, I think I emailed your show or I think you've been a like a what's the word I'm looking for? Long time. I think you were like a a. a when um, Michael Angelo Signorelli, when he was first, I know that I've like talked to you before. Okay, and I'm sorry. We're, we're having some drinks. We're like, <laughs> <laughs> good for you. Good, enjoy them. Oh, enjoy your so time. Listen, Thank but listen, it's so okay. Much. It's okay to get frustrated. It's okay to feel crazy. It's okay to scream. You know, it's all right. Just just love and don't stop fighting and don't despair. Despondency is privilege. We don't get to do it. Check out, live. Remember why life is worth living because life is beautiful. When life is hard, it's still beautiful. When yeah. we're old and when we die, we would give anything to come back here and just breathe for another five seconds of time. And we get so little time and so many moments of it don't make sense. But the few moments that do make sense make the rest of it worth it. And your call has moved me so much. Your relationship moves me so much. And I'm, I'm really honored that the two of you would sully your beautiful evening by listening to us. Thank you. All right. Love you. you. Bye. Have a great night, guys. What a pleasure. We'll be right back. Earl in California, thanks for your patience. Hey, John. How hey. you doing? Great. How are you? 
I don't know. I'm I'm about tired of this this situation that we're in. I mean, which one? I'm tired I, of like nineteen situations. Go ahead. Yeah, I mean, I I, I mentioned you know uh, to your screener, um, wonderful lady that that your screener is. Yeah, she's a I, goddess. Know, uh, I, I, I'm sorry. Uh, it seems like I've been doing dealing with this shit since 1980, since 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 Reagan got in office. You know, uh, yeah. it's. It's insane. Yep. Um, maybe we, maybe the left, maybe the American left needs to do, needs to mirror what what the conservatives are doing because they have the Proud Boys, they have the the the, the all that paramilitary stuff. Maybe we need yep. to bring back the maybe we need to bring back the the Wetterman because this is crazy. This is I mean, what happened today with the Supreme Court. They're running the country. I they're know. running the country. I know it, but I mean, weathermen, you know, I'm, I'm not into violence. If, you, if you're talking about destruction, you can count me out, but I, I'm with you. I want to see the left be a lot louder. Uh, I want to see the left, you know, still break the laws. I'm sorry, I'm nonviolence all the way. That's, that's my whole programming. But yeah, I want people I, to make a lot more that, noise. And I, and, and, not to, and, I mean, and I want it through art. I want it through advocacy. I want it through through uh, uh, activism. I want it through people running for office on the local level. I mean, uh, you know, I'm a big fan of just people on the left, and the left is a great big broad coalition where we never get along with each other. We never see eye to eye. The moderates and the people on the left are always going to hate each other, but we need each other to stop the fascists. So, whatever ideas and you I'm, got, I'm, I'm listening. Not, I'm not. I'm not trying to fight, pick a fight with 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 anybody, but. Damn, we need self-defense here. What in what sense? I'm a black man. I'm a black man, and I'm I'm scared for my life. Yeah, you understand me on that? I do. Yes, I do. Believe me, I do. I listen. Any white person that can see and I'm a progressive, and I'm a liberal, and I give a damn about my country. Yep. And I'm seeing it go down the toilet, and I'm tired. I'm tired of being, you know, having to 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 self-censor myself with these people. I am tired, sick and tired. Why do you have to self-censor yourself? And I, and I can't come up with any kind of solutions. Why do you have to self-censor yourself? Because, I mean, I mean, why, why self-censor? I mean, I'm sure you're a gentleman, right? So, I mean, what do you mean by self-censor? I tried to be because I have home training. My, yeah. my dad and my mom, you know, raised me correctly. Right on. I get it. I get it. I mean, Listen, for we have God's to... sake, I was a Boy Scout. A Boy Scout. <laughs> but I admire your passion. I don't want you to mute that. I think your passion's great. We have, look, here's the burden we have. We have to fight for other people. We have to be the good guys. We don't get to be evil douchebags. We might want to act that way because we see folks on the right doing it. We see Donald Trump getting rich doing it. But we have the burden of being the good guys. But don't let go of the anger. Don't let it kill you. Hate will give you cancer. Don't let it, you know, destroy you because hate will make us all I stupid. But use the yeah. anger. Let anger be the battery. And, and by the way, outrage is better than anger. And you sound more like you have outrage over injustice than you have anger that's making you crazy. I mean, don't let go of that energy. Keep your fire burning and think of new ways to use it constructively and turn people on to the bullshit around us. I mean, it, it's good to be inspired, but it's good to inspire other people, too. I, I respect your anger. Yeah, because I, I, you know, I, I look, I look at, I look at the situation, and I look at people on our side, the, the, the pacifists on our side. You know, what happens to them? They don't live long lives. Martin Luther King didn't didn't live a long life. 
Yeah. It's always the liberals who get bumped off. It's always the idealistic people who want change. Who gets you ever see a, a conservative guy get assassinated? It's Medgar Evers. It's Gandhi. It's 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 John Lennon. It's it's Robert Kennedy. It's John Kennedy. It's Malcolm X. It's Anwar Sadat mm-hmm. killed by his own people for making peace with Israel. It's Itzhak Rabin killed by his own people for making a peace deal with the PLO. It's Jesus. He only made it to 33. The one who are going to try to fight for the least of us are going to always have a target on their back and the smug selfish motherfuckers are always going to have an army of smug selfish motherfuckers but it doesn't give us an excuse to be a nihilist and check out and not care we have to take the risk we have to get out there and fight for what's right and fight for other people and fight for the least of us yeah. Yeah, I mean what, what, what else well, are you going to do I'm, sit around I'm, and play I'm, with your prick for 50 years we got to get out there and fight yeah don't, unfortunately I'm not a nihilist I just don't want to come down to a situation where I'm, I'm the only one that's fighting back, you know. You're not. I mean, if it comes to that, fine. But, you know, I, it, it, tilting, at, tilting windmills um, doesn't seem all that appealing to me. I know, but there's direct things we should do. You can run for office yourself. <laughs> I'm serious. State and local office matters so much more. And every time a liberal doesn't run for a state or local office, you know some racist idiot's got to run for it. I mean, like, yeah. this is just we have to get involved more on in the civic level. Unfortunately, uh, my representative is John Garamendi, mm. and he, he's a good guy. Yeah. Uh, he's a Democrat, so, you know, there it is. I'm going to have to move to, I guess, uh, uh, Nebraska or some some god-awful place and, you know, <laughs> make a difference there, but... Well, listen. I mean, I mean you know, the anger is great. Just don't let it turn. Just don't let it turn into hate. Just just use it constructively and and be passionate and and use social media and call radio shows and 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 debate people in good faith. You know, it's like it's like yeah, the God worst, knows I do it at work. Yeah, well, as long as you don't get angry and hateful, because that's going to make them believe they're right. We got to be nice to these people. When my dad died, yeah. there were more Republicans at his funeral than Democrats, and he would have been proud of that. I gotta hit a break. I'm very sorry, old, but I appreciate the call. You got me all riled up. 888-900-3393. 